chapter 6, if you're ready to dive into God's Word, would you say amen? amen? And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you, and most of the verses will be on the screen today. But let's start reading Hebrews chapter 6. We're right in the middle of this series, FFTF, Faith for the Future, and we are praying and talking about the future that we believe that God has for us collectively and also individually. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 today. Let's start reading in verse number 9. The Bible says this, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and tell them better things, better things, better things and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Today, for a few minutes, I'd like to speak to this subject, better days ahead, better days ahead. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much. For this day that you've given us and god thank you for those that have prayed to accept you as their savior in the last couple of weeks at rock hill lord thank you for the work that you did in the early service today and god i pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way through your word uh, right here at the 10 o'clock lord i pray that your holy spirit would work and guide us into truth and that we would understand what these verses in hebrews mean and how we can apply them to our lives. And we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said today, amen. amen. Sometimes my children will say things that make me laugh. How many of you have young children in the room? And uh, sometimes my kids will say things that will make me laugh. And a couple years ago, I woke up, and I was, I was laying in bed, and I woke up, and my son Luke, who was uh, four or five at the time, he was just standing right in front of me. He was just staring right at me. And uh, kind of just freaked me out for a second. I'm like, Luke, what are you doing? And, uh, and uh, Luke said, Dad, look. And he pointed at this ray of light that was shining through the window in our room, this ray of light, and it was kind of hitting the carpet. He said, Dad, look, it's the future. And I thought, <laughs> I don't know what that means, Luke, but wow, that was pretty deep, right? And uh, Dad, it's the future. And uh, the future apparently was on his mind. And uh, over the last several weeks, as we've been in this series, FFTF, the future has been on our minds. We are considering the future uh, that we believe that God has for us as a church and we are considering the future that God has for us as individuals. And I believe that it's healthy. And I believe that it's biblical every once in a while to pause and to consider uh, the end of a thing, to consider the future, what lies ahead. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived yet. But this one thing that I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, don't you just love the Apostle Paul's perspective that says, I'm not going to stay stuck in stagnation of my past, but I'm going to move forward and press toward the prize of, uh, of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
He wanted to be propelled into the future that God had for them. Now, if you don't know, in this series, we're praying and we're asking God to provide Rock Hill for a future building. And we are praying and believing that God has a space for us, that we can continue to sound out the gospel message. That's what the board and the lobby is all about. We're praying that God would provide for us. But you need to know that this is far bigger than just a physical brick and mortar location. This is far greater than just a building. Can I tell you today that we are praying that God would expand our influence here in the Inland Empire and also around the world, that we could continue to send out missionaries, that we can continue to start and support uh, more church planners so that more people can be reached with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus Christ, that there are still teenagers that need to be saved next week at youth conference. There are still children that need to know about the good news of the gospel. There are still families that need to find the love love of Christ and, and uh, a biblical foundation for their home. And so it's far bigger than just a building. And the church is not a building. The church is the people. And it's not about a building, but it is about what happens inside of a building. And we want to pray and ask God uh, to provide for us. Now, uh, to consider the future that God has for us, we're going to come to Hebrews chapter 6 today. And we find this very interesting passage where the uh, unknown author, the unknown human author, we know that uh, this passage is, is inspired by, uh, the, in, uh, by the uh, Holy Spirit, but the unknown human author is uh, describing how the church should be concentrated and focused on the future. Now, to give us a little bit of context as to what we're going to study, because we kind of just picked up right in the middle of the chapter, right in the middle of the book, uh, the overall theme of the book of Hebrews is the sufficiency of Christ. The book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians that were going through intense persecution, and the author is telling them how Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough, and Jesus is better uh, than anything that the world might have to offer. And in verses 1 through 3, uh, the author is talking about spiritual maturity. Is it okay if I just lay a little bit of groundwork and context this morning before we dive in? And uh, in verses 1 through 3, he's talking about spiritual maturity. He's saying, don't just stay stuck in the elementary things, that you need to grow in spiritual maturity. Uh, there are some Christians that never really get out of the kiddie pool. Uh, they never get out of the shallow end. And so in verses 1 through 3, he's saying, hey, dive into the deep things that God has for you. Grow in spiritual maturity. And then in verses 4 through 6, he issues a strong warning. In fact, you read it, and it's a very sobering warning about apostasy. And he's talking about those that will fall away, those that will reject Jesus Christ, and they will fall away. And uh, he's talking about those that have even tasted of the goodness of God, and they've even been involved, and they've seen uh, some things that God can do, and they were involved, but they were never truly invested, and they, they fell short of entering into the fullness of salvation, and they eventually would reject Jesus Christ and move beyond hope of salvation. And this was a very serious and very sobering warning that he's giving to uh, this congregation. And then he comes to verse number nine, and he makes this transition. And he's been warning. It's been serious. It's been heavy, this warning of apostasy, those that will fall away. And he's been warning them to grow in spiritual maturity. And then he makes this transition in verse number nine. Notice verse number nine. It says this. If you're with me this morning, would you say amen? In verse nine, it says this, but beloved. Do you see the transition? But beloved. Uh, beloved, that was a term of, of endearment. It was a term of love. And, and so he's letting them know that, that, that God still loves them and has a plan for them and that they can actually be encouraged. It kind of reminds me of if you've ever played sports 
Uh, sometimes you walk into a halftime locker room, and uh, it's, a, it's an intense environment. When I was in high school, I played basketball, and I would walk into uh, the locker room sometimes at halftime, and we'd be playing bad, and our coach would just let us have it. And he would say, you guys are all playing terrible, and you're just playing lazy, and your heart's not in it, and your head's not in it, and you're not doing what we talked about in practice. How many of you have ever been in an environment like that, okay? And uh, some of you are like, not in sports, but at work <laughs> Monday through Friday. And, uh, and the coach is like uh, just you know, telling us how bad we're doing, and then typically... If it's a good coach, there's typically a transition that takes place where he is saying how terrible we're doing. And then he says, all right, but let's get back out there. We can win this game. You can do it. We've worked hard for this. Hey, uh, you can do this. And it moves from instruction really to inspiration. It it moves from uh, the warning and uh, uh, the exhortation to the encouragement. And that's what's happening in the book of Hebrews right in the middle of the book, right in chapter six, that he is transitioning to encouragement. Can I tell you today some good news that God actually wants you to live a life of encouragement, that God wants you to be encouraged. And maybe somebody needs to hear that today, that God does not want you to live a life of discouragement, that God does not want you to live a life of anxiety, that he does not want you to live a life of frustration and low-grade agitation that you just carry with you on a daily basis. Can I tell you that God wants you to be encouraged, that he loves you, that his grace is available for you, that his mercy is available for you, and that he promises a peace that passes understanding. He promises a joy that's unspeakable. He wants you to be encouraged. And so the author of Hebrews makes this transition he says but beloved and he says there is some good news for you there's encouragement coming there are better days ahead in fact I love what A.W. Tozer said God's encouragement is like a strong fortress providing us with strength protection and a firm foundation and so with that in mind what I'd like to do this morning as we study these few verses from Hebrews 6 is I'd like to just simply give us three encouragements would that be okay today Uh, three encouragements that I believe will spur on faith for the future. Three encouragements. Number one, if you're taking notes today, is this. Number one, God has better things in store. You need to know that God has better things in store. Let's let's pick up our text in verse number nine. The Bible says this, but beloved, we are persuaded, we're convinced, better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And that little phrase, though we thus speak, he says, even though we've been intense with you, even though we've been warning you, sometimes as a shepherd, as a leader, uh, you can be intense. And he says, even though I've been using some, some language of intensity, uh, we are convinced that better things are for you, even though we're speaking this way. Even though we warned of apostasy, uh, we don't believe that applies to you. We are convinced that there are better things, and specifically better things, did you notice, that accompany salvation. Now, what does that mean? Better things that accompany salvation. This past year, I surprised my son Luke for Christmas, and I bought him tickets to a, a Laker game. And uh, Luke and I, we went to a Laker game, and uh, we were so excited to go together. It was his first time ever going. And I bought the tickets online. They weren't super close seats, but uh, they had this special attachment with them because the original owner of the tickets was this premier section holder. And so accompanying with that ticket, we had some, some perks and some advantages. advantages. One of them was uh, we were able to go into a special VIP entrance. And so Luke felt, felt very cool about that. I'm like, Luke, we get to go in this door over here here and and uh, he was looking around and and uh, we had access to a special menu there at the game uh, a menu that wasn't available anywhere else and we even could at our seats 
press a little button and there would be a waitress that would come and take your order to deliver food right there to your seat. So you didn't even need to leave your seat to go get popcorn. They would just bring it right to you. And uh, some special features. I told Luke, I wanted to make a memory and I said, you can get whatever you want. And he said, dad, I want hot chocolate. <laughs> and so uh, we got him some hot chocolate out of everything on the menu. That's what, that's what he wanted. And uh, that ticket uh, was accompanied with some pretty cool features. Can I tell you that the moment that you got saved, you got far more than merely a ticket to heaven. That there are so many wonderful things that accompany your salvation. That the moment that you prayed and accepted Christ, yes, you received eternal life in that moment. But the moment that you got saved, you also received the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God that gives you the victory over sin. You also received the indwelling and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that you can actually understand that which you are reading in Scripture. The moment that you got saved, you received a peace that passes all understanding. The moment that you got saved, you received the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. The moment that you got saved, you received access to God the Father that created you. Hey, aren't you thankful for all the wonderful things that accompany your salvation? All of these wonderful, better things. If we would just pause every once in a while and consider all the things that we have access to, and if we would actually take advantage of all the wonderful things that accompany our salvation, it would propel us into the future that God has for us. And so there are, there's a great encouragement here. Better things in store. But not only is there an encouragement, there's also an exhortation. Uh, an exhortation meaning there, there's an instruction here. Now, the author of Hebrews gives this illustration, starting in verse 7. It's a very simple illustration uh, that I believe is helpful for us to understand the context of what he's talking about here when he says the better things. Notice verse number 7. Are you with me today? Verse number 7, it says this. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that comes oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receive blessing from God. Now, it's a very simple illustration so far. He says if the rain down and the soil is good, it's going to produce good herbs. It's going to receive the blessing from God. It's going to produce good fruit. When the rain comes down, if the soil is good. Pretty simple so far. Verse 8. He says, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. He says, but if the ground is not soft, if the ground is not good soil, and it's, it's thorny, and it's rocky, and it's a hard soil, it's not going to produce good fruit. And this is what he's saying. I, I don't believe that for you. Because remember, what comes after verse 8 is verse number 9, which says that there are better things in store for you. And, and so what he's saying is that God has called you, and God is asking us to produce good fruit. Uh, can, can I remind you today, the Bible says that, uh, that they will know them by their fruit. That there should be evidence, that there should be uh, a visible evidence of fruit of our salvation. These are the better things that accompany uh, salvation, this, this fruit. Uh, how many of you enjoy fruit in life? You just like to eat fruit? My kids, uh, they eat so much fruit that we'll order a big giant container of strawberries and they'll eat it all in five minutes. And uh, it just, it's gone so fast. They love fruit. Uh, I was reading uh, this picture up on the screen I was reading this week. Uh, this is... It looks just like a normal melon, but this is, in fact, uh, one of the world's most expensive melons. It's a Japanese specialty, uh, Yubari, I think, melon, that this melon cost over $20,000 for this melon. You can look it up. It's, the, it's, it's a very rare melon. And uh, what I want to know is who's spending $20,000 on fruit uh, to eat uh, one time. Uh, but, you know, the truth is the Bible has so much to say about fruit. The Bible says that you will know them by their fruit that we're commanded to uh, produce good fruit when it comes to salvation, when it comes to people that you're sharing the gospel with, that's fruit that remains. 
The Bible says that there should be the fruit of thanksgiving upon our lips, that when we sacrifice and praise through worship, uh, that that's visible fruit that we're offering, uh, that we're displaying for the Lord. Spurgeon said this, Charles Spurgeon. He said, the great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all, they bear leaves, but they produce no fruit. In other words, to bear leaves but to produce no fruit is when Jesus cursed the fig tree, if you remember this. He cursed the fig tree because it had leaves, which gave the, uh, which gave the appearance of figs. It gave the appearance of the season of figs and fruit, but there was no figs on the tree. There was no fruit. And so he uh, uh, cursed that tree. And Spurgeon is saying, we know how to have leaves. In other words, we know how to look the part. We know how to speak the Christianese. Uh, we know how to say the right verbiage. We know how to dress the part, speak the part, look the part. But are we producing actual real fruit? These are the better things that accompany salvation. You know, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It says this in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. These are the better things that accompany salvation, the fruit of the Spirit. But make sure, uh, whenever you come to the fruit of the Spirit, make sure that you resist the temptation to take the fruit of the Spirit and turn it into a to-do list. Because we are great as religious people often. Religion will tell you this is what you have to do. And uh, we often find our worth in our performance. And so we take, uh, we take that fruit of the Spirit. What we do is turn it into a to-do list. Well, man, I've got to be more joyful. I've got to be more loving. I've got to be more patient. I've got to be more kind. I've got to be more long-suffering. And we turn that into a to-do list. But, but please hear me. The fruit of the Spirit is not a to-do list. It's a fruit list. It's a byproduct of walking and being yielded to the Holy Spirit. And so if you yield yourself to the Spirit and say, it's not about what I want to do in my flesh, but I do want to surrender my will to the Holy Spirit, then these fruits will be a natural byproduct of walking with the Spirit. And the Spirit can produce in you what you cannot produce in your flesh. And so uh, the fruit of the Spirit, these are the things, the better things that we should be uh, displaying when it comes to our salvation. Uh, I love what the Bible says in Psalm 84, in verse number 10, talking just about how, uh, how it's so much better to uh, live for Jesus. It's so much better to be in the house of God. It says this, for a day in thy courts is better. Everybody say better. better. It's better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Can I just tell you that following Jesus is better than anything that the world has to offer. In fact, if you study the book of Hebrews, this is the entire message of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is better than the Old Testament law, that Jesus is better than the sacrificial system, that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood, that Jesus is better than any vacation, that Jesus is better than any salary, that Jesus is better than any relationship. Can I just remind you today that Jesus is better than anything that the world has to offer? And so that's why the author of Hebrews can say with confidence, we are persuaded that better things are in store for you. But we are persuaded that better days are ahead because Jesus is better. Aren't you thankful for that today? Now, we know, number one, the first encouragement that God has better things in store. But number two is this, God has not forgotten about you. You need to know today, no matter what season of life, no matter what walk of life, that God has not forgotten about you. He has not forgotten about your situation. He has not forgotten about your service. He has not forgotten about your trial. He has not forgotten about your suffering. That, 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 that his eye is on the sparrow and suddenly his eye is on you. I want you to see how the author says in verse number 10. Everybody still with me today? Verse number 10 says this. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Now, 
this verse really begins with the character of God, which is so important because our encouragement does not come from the commitment of man. Our encouragement comes from the character of God, that he is not unrighteous, that, that he, in fact, indeed is righteous, that he is just, which is good news for us today because if you look out in the culture and the world today, what you see are injustices, you see inequity, you see lying, you see backstabbing, you see things that aren't fair, uh, you see things that are, are wicked by nature, and we see all of these things, and we long for justice, as we should. The prophet Micah says this in Micah chapter 5, verse number 2, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 8. He that he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. You ever wonder, what does God want from me? Well, this verse answers the question. What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And so God is a God of justice. He's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor. He, he is righteous. And this is good news. When we look out in the world today and we see all the wicked and we see all the evil and the injustices that are taking place, we can rest assured that our God is sovereign, that our God is good, that he is in control, and that he is just, and that he is righteous. And so our God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Now, this is really encouraging. This is really good news today. For any mom that has been trying to quiet a crying baby at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning when no one else sees, to any father that feels as though he's trying to provide for his family but doesn't think he's doing a good job, for any son or daughter that just feels like, man, I'll never measure up to what my parents are expecting of me, uh, to any servant or volunteer that is serving faithfully but they're not getting recognized and no one sees the hours that you're putting in, can I just encourage you that God is not unfaithful to forget your work and your labor of love, that, that his eye is on you, that he knows exactly what you're doing, he knows what you're going through, he sees that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Uh, that, that he knows what we're doing. He is not unjust to forget our works of righteousness. Now, in, in light of that, uh, our works of righteousness, notice, no, notice in verse number 10, he tells us uh, to keep on being faithful when it comes to our service. In light of God's faithfulness, notice verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work in your labor of love. Okay. Now, in context of serving in the local church, I want to talk for a minute. Uh, I know that we have many people on our dream team, on our serve teams that serve in the parking lot, in the nursery, in the Rock Hill Kids, and, and uh, media team. Let's give it up for our media team every week back there. Now, we have to remember, this is a great verse for the dream team. It's a great verse for anyone interested in serving. Uh, that, that God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love. Uh, because what we have to understand is serving is first, it's a labor. Sometimes it takes a little bit of sacrifice to come early and to, and to work. And it's a labor, but it's a labor of love. In other words, it's not a have to. It's a get to. It's a labor of love. And when I think of a labor of love, I always think of my mom at Christmas time because my mom loves Christmas. It's her favorite holiday. And she loves when the family comes together. She loves when all the grandkids come together. All 11 grandkids are there. My mom always has a craft for them and always has pajamas for them and always has games for them and, and treats for them and snacks for them. And, and uh, uh, this past Christmas, my mom fell down and she ended up hurting her arm pretty badly. And she was in a sling all of Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. And yet uh, the whole time she was still smiling and serving the kids and helping them do things and staying up till two o'clock in the morning wrapping presents and and you know she was doing all these things she never complained 
She never had a bad attitude. Why? Because it was a labor of love. <laughs> she loves her family. She loves her grandkids. I wonder what would happen if the church started serving with a labor of love, that we would realize, man, this is not an obligation. This is not something that I have to do, that someone's twisting my arm, that someone has to constantly remind me to be involved. But man, I want to do this because I love Jesus and love people. First Thessalonians 1 says this, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love. And patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. And so uh, we have to keep serving out of love. But then we also, now don't miss this. Everybody sit with me. We have to remember our why. This is very important. We have to remember our why. Notice what it says in verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name. There's the phrase. Which you have showed toward his name. See, we have to remember that we serve ultimately for his name, that we do what we do for the Lord, that we don't do what we do for the applause of man, that we don't do what we do for just the people that are sitting around us. We do what we do for his name, for his glory, for his honor, and his honor alone. Now, sometimes we can serve and do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we can serve because we are just interested in results. I just want something good to happen. I just want to hit my goal. I just want to hit my number. I'm serving, but I'm really just interested in the results. Other times we can serve because we're interested in recognition. Man, I need someone to pat me on the back. I need someone to tell me, you did such a great job. And wow, man, I can't believe you sacrificed so much. And man, you're so awesome. And we just are looking for that affirmation. And so we serve either for results or we serve for recognition. Uh, the third reason to serve is simply for routine. I'm just doing this because I've always done it. I'm just doing this because I feel like I'm supposed to. It's kind of obligatory. And so we just do it because it's out of routine. But can I tell you today that we should not serve for routine or for recognition or for results, but that we should serve for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that he would get all the glory that he alone deserves. Can I tell you, we serve for the audience of one, and his name is Jesus. And so we have to remember why it is that we do what we do. Remember your why. This is really good news when you're discouraged serving. This is really good news when you're serving in the nursery and that little baby bites you and you're wondering if you should ever serve in the nursery ever again. It's really good news when you pull into the church parking lot and somebody cuts you off and you are just tempted to respond in your flesh, right? Uh, this is a really good thing to remember when you feel as though no one appreciates your project. This is a really good thing to remember when you practice hours and hours on a song and then you sing it and someone tells you, I didn't like that song. I don't know if that's ever happened. I'm just guessing. I've never sung a song up here. The Bible says this in Acts 13, verse number two, and they ministered to the Lord. Who were they ministering to? Why were they doing what they were doing? It was for the Lord. It wasn't for themselves. It wasn't to make them feel good. It wasn't for their friends. They were serving. They were ministering for the Lord. So we have to remember our why. I love this verse, Psalm 115, verse number one. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. I love how he says, it's not about us. Let me say it again. It's not about us, God. It's all about you and your glory. And that's how we should be living and operating. A church that has faith for the future is a church that remembers their why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we show up early? Why do we celebrate? Why do we sing? We do it all for the glory of God. Now, notice the last part of verse 10. It says this. We do it towards his name. Then here's the last part. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. 
And so in other words, our why is vertical. We do it for the Lord. But our what is horizontal. We serve people. We love people. We should demonstrate the great love of Christ to the people that are in our lives. Last night I was talking to my youngest daughter, Blakely, and uh, I told Blakely on the phone, I said, I said, I love you, Blakely. And she said, Dad, I love you more than the whole world. And I said, Blakely, I love you more than the whole world. And she said, Dad, I love you more than the whole university. And uh, she was telling me how much she loved me, the whole university. You know, the Bible talks so often about God's great love that he's demonstrated toward us. And the love that has come to us should then go through us. And the Bible says this in 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And so to demonstrate the love of Christ to the people in our lives. Number one, God has better things in store. Number two, God has not forgotten about you. And here's a third and final thought today. Number three is this, God has equipped you for a marathon. You need to know that God has equipped you for a marathon. Notice verse number 11 of our text. It says this, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He's saying, I'm praying, it's my heart's desire, that you would be faithful unto the end. That you wouldn't burn out, that you wouldn't quit, that you wouldn't grow weary in well-doing, but that you would be faithful unto the end. That you would continue to run the race that God has for you all the way to the finish line. Uh, there's a member in our church, his name is Nick Carlin, and uh, this week he sent me a meme about running, and uh, it, it says this, I think we have a picture of it. It says, I wanted to go jogging, but Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. So there's that. And uh, he was just looking for any way to get out of jogging, getting, getting out of uh, going for a run, right? And uh, now, whether you enjoy running physically or not, how many of you enjoy running? You enjoy exercise? Okay. Uh, just a few of you. Sometimes we think... Sometimes that we think when it comes to the spiritual race that we've been called to run, man, I don't know if I can, if I can last. I don't know if I can make it all the way to uh, the finish line and keep on serving faithfully all the days of my life. We need to know a couple things. Number one, we need to know that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. That, that we're in it for the long haul. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And there is very encouraging news for any of us that feel like, man, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to spur out. I, I don't want to fall short. Philippians 1, 6 says this. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this is great news that God says I have equipped you for a marathon, that I will enable you, that I will empower you, that I will give you the strength that you need in the day of adversity. When you feel like, man, I can't take another step, God's power can come into your life and enable you to go further than you ever thought was possible. He says, I will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I will give you the strength that you need. It's not about what we bring to the table, but it's about what God can do in us and through us. And so with this in mind, I want to close today by just giving two practical exhortations. All right, two practical exhortations. And the first one is this that I see in the text. We have to reject laziness. If we're in it for the marathon and God has equipped us for a marathon, we have to reject laziness. All right, notice what it says in verse number 12. That you be not slothful. All right? So don't be 
slothful, don't be lazy. Now, I'm thankful that we do not have to work or earn our salvation. Is anybody at the 10 o'clock service thankful for that? That we don't have to earn or achieve or work for our salvation. But the Christian life does involve labor. That, that we do have to do our part, not to earn our salvation, uh, but uh, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as the book of Philippians uh, requires of us. Solomon says this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 6. He says, go to the ant. And that's another way of saying, think about the ant for a second. Go to the ant. Consider the ant. Thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. And so something interesting about the ant, Solomon tells us to consider the ant. Something interesting about the ant is that the ant is characterized by activity and industry. You ever see an ant taking a nap? An ant is always just kind of moving, always doing things, right? Always building something, carrying something. You know, probably the most interesting fact about an ant is that an ant can carry more than 50 times its own weight. Can you imagine if we could do that as human beings? That would be over 9,000 pounds that we could carry, right? And uh, an ant can carry things, and an ant is industrious. But Solomon said in verse number 6 of Proverbs chapter 6, consider the ant and be wise. And so there is this direct correlation between work and wisdom. That if you want wisdom in your life, then you should have work in your life. When you welcome work, you welcome wisdom. When you reject work, you reject wisdom. Now, our culture today struggles to have a healthy balance when it comes to this, when it comes to work and responsibility. And uh, in fact, there's usually one of two extremes. On one extreme over here, we have people that glorify their work. They never want to take a day off. They never want to rest. They just want to say, man, I'm working overtime and I'm, I'm hustling and I'm grinding. And, and, uh, and uh, man, I've just, I, I, never, I never have any time to myself. I'm just working. I'm just working. And sometimes we can glorify the work. Sometimes we can even find our worth in the work when who I am is based on what I do and what I bring to the table. And so on one side, we have someone that is just glorifying their work, which by the way, when someone glorifies their work and they never rest, it's an indication that they're not fully trusting in the Lord because they're relying on their ability, their work ethic. It's what I, it's what I do. And I can't afford to take a rest because things need to be done. And we're not trusting that God can work behind the scenes. And so a failure to rest is a failure to trust that God is in control. And so on one side, we have people that glorify the work. And then on the other side, we have people that vilify work and that uh, they are afraid of work and they don't like to talk about work. And, and uh, on, on this side, it's, man, my boss called me to come in 20 minutes early. Can you believe that they did that? And uh, I have to work a 25 hour work week and man, I can't believe it. And, and uh, I'm just getting paid minimum wage. I, I, you know, I need a raise for all that I'm doing here. And over here, we have a culture that despises work, right? And what we need is to find a balance and a rhythm of rest and responsibility. Can I tell you that work is not a bad thing? That in the garden, God called Adam and Eve to tend the garden before the fall of man. That work is a good thing. That responsibility is a good thing. So rest and responsibility are something that we have to have a healthy rhythm and find balance in. But so often, uh, we can find ourselves not wanting to put forth the work, put forth the labor. And uh, uh, the Bible has some humorous examples of this. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27, it says this, The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting. So think about this for a second. Everybody still with me? Think about this for a second. Solomon's kind of making fun of lazy people. He's just saying, this is a joke, this verse. He says, a lazy person is going to go out hunting and they're going to do all the work to hunt and to kill an animal. But then when they get home, they're too lazy to actually prepare it, to actually eat it. So they just let it go to waste. Like how silly, how foolish would that be? 
right? He's kind of painting a ludicrous example. He gives another one in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24. A slothful man hides his hand in his bowl and not so much as bring it to his mouth again. So (laughs) this is another humorous example. It's like someone uh, that sits down at night after a long day and says, you know what? I want to, I want to have a nice bowl of ice cream at the end of the day. How many of you would say that sounds nice after a long day, a bowl of ice cream? All right. About 12 of you. Uh, The other people, you should try it. I think it would really uh, brighten the end of your day. And uh, uh, going, imagine going and getting some ice cream from the fridge and bring it to the table and taking the top off and scooping the ice cream into a bowl and uh, uh, waiting for it to to melt a little bit and, and going through the work of getting it in the bowl and then putting the lid back on and going to put it back in the freezer and then going sitting down on the couch and having that bowl of ice cream in your hands and just thinking, man, oh, I'm just too tired to bring the spoon to my mouth. I just am going to just leave it in my hand. I just, oh, I can't even do it. Uh, that's exactly what that verse was saying uh, in Proverbs. That's exactly what Proverbs 19, 24, a slothful man hides his hand in the bowl. And, and here's what he's saying. He, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you have to finish that which you start. You have to be faithful in the follow-through. You you can't just start strong and then fizzle out. We have to honor God with the follow-through. And this is exactly what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews is saying, man, I am praying and it's my heart's desire that you wouldn't fizzle out, but that you would be faithful to follow through what God has called you to, to keep on going, to keep on being faithful, to keep on praying, to keep on serving, to keep on believing, because if God has called you to it, he will see you through it. And and so uh, to not fizzle out, but that we have to recognize that God has equipped us for the marathon, for the long haul. Notice what it says at the end of verse number 12. That you be not slothful, but followers or imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit, not achieve, inherit the promises. He says, if you're going to be faithful, if you're going to have faith for the future, you have to deploy faith and patience. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know how long it's going to take, but we know that God is good, that he is faithful, and that he's always working behind the scenes. Remember when Joseph in the Old Testament received all those promises in the dream about power and position and prominence, that those dreams did not come to fruition until 13 years later. We need faith and patience to believe that God will provide. Uh, Back in 2018, during the Olympics, there was the cross-country skiing event, and uh, there was this interesting story that caught my attention from a skier from Mexico named German Madrazo. And the article said that this was uh, the happiest athlete was not the one that finished first. In fact, it was the one who finished last. And so this skier finished in last place, and he finished some 26 minutes behind the other skiers. But what makes the story interesting is that this skier who skied in the Olympics in 2018 skied for the very first time and learned how to ski in 2017, only one year before the Olympics. And so somehow he learned how to ski and in one year he qualified for the Olympics the very next year. And so he told reporters and all of his friends, he said, I was just wanting to prove to myself and to prove to my friends and to prove to my country that I could just finish the race. So often in life, we are far more concerned with being successful than we are with being faithful. But God did not call us to be successful. He called us to be faithful. And to say, like Paul said to Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And here's the good news, that God has equipped us for the marathon. And so today, how can we have faith for the future? How can we have faith for the future? Number one, God has better things in store. Aren't you thankful for that? Number two, God has not forgotten about you. And number three, God has equipped us for the marathon. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.